Um, and to recognize that, that if I am having a bad day and I do need a bit of support, that doesn't mean I'm going to break and it doesn't mean that the organization is going to fall down around me. It just need, means that I need a little bit more support right now to get me through that period. And if you've got a great board or you've got great management and great leaders, they're going to see that as a strength, not a weakness. G'day and welcome to episode 34 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and it's an absolute pleasure today to be sitting down with Brian Casey, the CEO of Food Bank Australia. Brian is an incredible person. Her list of accomplishments is extensive. She was a CEO at the age of 23, a passionate advocate and people person. Brianna has spent her fair share of time on the hill in Canberra, where she's successfully succeeded in lobbying government to increase their support of food relief organisations and in turn some of the most vulnerable people in society. For me, Brianna has been somewhat of an informal mentor, bouncing many ideas off her over the last few years. And earlier this year we were chatting and I said to her, I really want to shift the narrative around agriculture and bring different groups of people into the conversation to try and make agriculture more circular. I'm thinking of doing a podcast. The response I got from her was, do it in capital letters too. The initial shove was the catalyst for what has now been 41 episodes since the end of March. A very welcome distraction for me. It's been a challenge, it's an opportunity and it's given me the chance to ask questions of people from all over and all different walks of life. To understand a bit more about the situation with how the world's changing before our eyes and just their own stories. I owe Brianna a massive thank you and a big welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, Brianna. Thank you for having me. I'm so proud of what you've achieved. It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's funny to think back. I think it was back in February. You're like, just get on and do it. And then I think a few days later, I somehow managed to get onto Mark LeBroy. And then he was episode one, which then was six weeks until it was released. And yeah, a whole new set of skills have been uncovered. <laughs> I must confess, I felt a bit bossy. I really felt like I gave you a big shove and an unashamed shove. But honestly, I think that's the most exciting thing about agriculture is we have so many great ideas and we're so creative and and so passionate about what we do. But often we can be nervous about putting our heads up and uh, being exposed and the potential to be shot down. And I think what we have seen this year is agriculture is so fundamental to what makes Australia tick. And I think through panic buying, through COVID, through recognising how important farm labour is. I think every Australian knows this year just how important our farmers are. And that's something we should be incredibly proud of. Absolutely. And so I think that's a perfect way to jump straight into it for you. But growing up uh, on the north coast of New South Wales and going and studying environmental science, was agriculture and farming on always on the table for you or was it a job? <laughs> No, it's a bit of a weird one. Um, I grew up in Byron Bay and uh, it was a a pretty different town back then to what it is at the moment, far less tourists and blow-ins back then. Um, But my grandparents were on a farm in Bangalore up in the gorgeous red soils in the hills behind Byron. And I had a real affinity with farmers and farming from a very young age, but I also recognised in that area how much competition there was for land and how many gorgeous farms were being lost to housing developments and housing estates. And 
it got me really curious about what our long-term answer was in terms of protecting, um, and I'm not suggesting it's prime agricultural land up there, but I think ongoing, how do we protect prime agricultural land and, and how do we value it? And for me, again, growing up in Byron, having a strong interest in sustainability um, led me to pursue uh, environmental science at university. And as I was going through that degree, I think as a lot of people do when they are embarking on the next chapter of their life, I was pretty uncertain about where that degree was going to take me. And it was quite a new degree at the time as well. And when I was studying the social policy major in particular, I was really fascinated about what that meant. But I was equally fascinated about what I was observing as a, a real shift in the way we manage and have respect for our land and water resources. So when I saw an opportunity come up to jump into a role at Queensland Farmers Federation, I was super keen. And what shocked me at the time, and, and still looking back now, I can still remember the visceral reactions, was the feedback from my peers at university and, and even some of my lecturers about pursuing a career in agriculture when I was supposed to be an environmental warrior or an environmental sustainability expert. It was right through to comments like, how can you be sleeping with the enemy? How can you jump in and, you know, talking about perceptions of what farming was like. And I just, one, I felt really defensive and, and I wanted to defend what I knew agricultural practices were actually like on the ground. But two, I thought, what an extraordinary opportunity to jump in there with both feet and be part of that narrative to be better at storytelling about the way that farmers manage the land and water resources around us, but also to be part of what I was observing on the ground, which was significant change in the way that we are farming our country and the way that we do respect our natural resources. So for me, I was pretty hungry to get into that role. And uh, what I think I didn't have an appreciation of at the time was just how political agriculture is. And uh, particularly when it comes to peak bodies. And at that time in the late 1990s, there was a lot of politics going on. Um, we had farmers who were being accused of, of runoff into the Great Barrier Reef and end off and spray drift and a whole range of controversial issues. But the most controversial issue at the time was land clearing. Uh, the Howard government made very clear they wanted to phase out land clearing as part of their Kyoto Protocol commitments. And it was on us in Queensland to come up with that solution. And it was fraught and it was messy, but it was probably the most exciting policy debate I'll ever have gotten my teeth into. And uh, ultimately, I think we landed on a pretty balanced position. But as someone who was incredibly young in their first year out of uni, flying back and forth to Canberra, negotiating with the Howard government, talking hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation and talking about global sustainability objectives. It was about as exciting as it gets. And one of the things I always say to young people, if you want the most exciting and dynamic career available to you, do not overlook agriculture because it doesn't matter whether you are a shiny bum in the capital city or out on country, you are going to be exposed to some of the most dynamic practices, most exciting practices. And I did, you know, it's an industry I'm really passionate about. Yeah, far out. And did you ever have any of your classmates or lecturers reach out to you after they saw you <laughs> taking on Canberra and be like, fair mm. enough. Yeah. <laughs> Look, ironically, a lot of my classmates I was actually having to go toe to toe against because they pursued careers in um, peak bodies for the environment sector. So whether it was the Wilderness Society or WWF or Greenpeace, that's where a lot of my colleagues ended up. And wow. we were sitting on opposite sides of the table negotiating these hardcore policy debates. 
And uh, it was actually really cool. And I still see some of them now. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues from university, Larissa Waters, is a senator uh, for the Greens. And you know, I just think at the time, would I have ever anticipated that my environmental science degree would take me to the Farmers Federation, take me ultimately to Food Bank? Probably not, but gosh, I'm glad it did. Yeah. And so that exposure to, I suppose, the lobbying piece, how quickly was it in your time there at Queensland Farmers Fed where you just got thrown the reins and as a stand-in CEO? <laughs> oh, pretty quick. Um, look, I did a couple of years in the environment policy role and then agriculture being agriculture, we had one of those infamous night of the long knives and we saw some changes in our board and ultimately our CEO left as well. And uh, the incoming president of Queensland Farmers Federation, um, an extraordinary man by the name of Gary Sansom, who was leading the chicken meat industry at the time, uh, was appointed the president. And he tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, can you keep the seat warm while we're recruiting for a CEO? And I said, I'm 23. I haven't got the first idea how to be CEO. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'd be completely exposed. You know, I was doing the whole imposter syndrome that we all tend to experience at some point throughout our career. Um, but he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And he really supported and nurtured the development stage of my career and had my back. And moreover, the entire board had my back. And that was a pretty extraordinary experience at such an early age and ultimately i kept that seat warm for five years um <laughs> which was, well and truly made uh, it your own refurnished did it. Make, yes, yes yes i did um and i i found it just an incredible experience and i don't want to diminish how hard it was it was bloody hard and we were dealing with some of the toughest emotionally fraught issues that anyone can imagine and the millennium drought was devastating and i can remember being in ministerial advisory councils when henry palaszczuk was primary industries minister in queensland that's anastasia's dad for anyone playing at home um and i remember bursting into tears on more than one occasion because i was just so overwhelmed by the devastation of what i was seeing in terms of the human impact of drought not just on farmers but on entire regions and Ultimately, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but when I ended up in a role at New South Wales Farmers looking after rural affairs, we were responsible ultimately for setting up the country's first ever rural mental health network. And it is something that I'm still proud of today to have been a part of, because at that point in time, we weren't talking about mental health openly. We certainly weren't talking about it in the bush, and we certainly didn't have blokes standing up in public forums and talking about the devastation of what they were seeing in terms of human lives and, and impacts on the ground. And we got to that. And we're at a stage now where we talk about mental health in the bush as openly as we talk about physical health. And we pass Are You OK billboards on the side of the road in the middle of gorgeous harvest and we smile about it. And mm. that is an extraordinary achievement over a period of 20 odd years to know that lives have been shaped for the better because there were so many brave, vulnerable people out there who put their hand up and said, if we don't start acknowledging this as a problem and start putting in place some solutions, we're not gonna lose farmers because of what's happening to our country. We're gonna lose farmers because of what's happening to us inside. So it was a really important issue and, and a great opportunity for us to turn that situation around. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think in regard to like, the agriculture and that, I suppose, seeing. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. 
I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. On the human impact side, was that a turning point for you in terms of becoming very people-focused? and Definitely. Definitely was fundamental to that. Um, again, I'd sort of gone down that path a little bit in, in doing a social policy major at uni, but it was very much the families I met, the people I met, the, the stories I heard that really gave me a passion for understanding people's stories better and becoming a better storyteller myself. And I think that, and I know I'm not the first one to say it, and I know plenty of people will be out in the background going, yeah, we know that. I just think agriculture has been pretty poor at telling its story over a really long time. And I think what we have a really unique opportunity to do now is use COVID as a positive mm. and hone in on the fact that we grow the world's best produce in this country, that we are capable of feeding ourselves three times over, that we are pretty unique in the global landscape and that we should be talking more about it. And we want to work with National Farmers Federation and we are working with National Farmers Federation and other organisations to be part of that storytelling, to ensure that everyday Australians know just how crucial farmers are to allowing food bank to help the most vulnerable people in our society. And it is not exaggerating and is not um, too far a stretch to say we simply would not be here as an organisation and as the country's largest food relief organisation if it weren't for farmers. That is a trip and we can't do what we do without you. Yeah. And do you think so, like, on this piece, and this is kind of where well, the, the whole Humans of Ag piece came in because, like, naturally we'd see areas like, food bank and people be like oh yeah it's not part of agriculture but it, it like mm. it's this whole circular system which is like yes that the farmers are so crucial to what you guys are doing but then at the other end too there's all this produce which has been created that will go to waste if it's not utilized like yeah. do you think is that changing or is it or is that an opportunity which hasn't actually been realized yet well what we've been really conscious to do at food bank is talk about supply and demand and one, we know that there is a hunger problem in this country. Yes, we produce enough food to feed ourselves three times over, but we know that at some point in 2019, one in five Australians had a point in the year where they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. So it's not that we don't grow enough. It's not that there's not enough food out there, but the right food isn't getting to the right places, to the right people in the right timelines to make that happen. So farmers are crucial to us because we can rescue product from farms, from packing sheds, from central markets that may not look quite right, but it's still delicious, still extremely nutritious, still incredibly valuable. And it provides an option because farmers work far too hard to produce these commodities, to see them ploughed back in or not picked or whatever the case may be. We wanna make sure that we can minimise or avoid food loss on farm. 
And if there's food waste along the supply chain, we want to grab it because in, in our eyes, it's not waste, it is surplus. And if we can grab that and provide it to those who are struggling, then that's a great outcome. It means that farmers haven't put water and energy and resources into producing these crops and, and products for nothing. They've actually done it for something really important. But on the other side, when we talk about, so that's the kind of supply piece, if we talk about demand, food bank doesn't just provide food relief to those in the city. In fact, people in country areas are more likely to be food insecure than their metro counterparts. And that does come as a shock to a lot of people. But we know whether it be drought, whether it be bushfires, whether it be the challenges of accessing essential services, whether it be the challenges of employment, there are unique challenges in the bush, which means that people in rural, regional and remote areas do fall on tough times more frequently than those in the city. And what we saw throughout the drought was unprecedented demand for food relief. We were sending food relief hampers and emergency relief hampers out to some of the most remote locations across Australia. And I remember working beautifully with the Country Women's Association of New South Wales to get these hampers out to Burke and Brewarrina, and then they went another 300 kilometres beyond because they felt forgotten. They were really struggling and hurting out there. And because there wasn't a spotlight on them and the TV cameras were sort of focusing on where they could capture some good footage in major cities, they felt forgotten. Well, we don't forget you. We want to make sure we can get food wherever it's needed, when it's needed. Mm. The really interesting thing I found, and to be honest, it was one of the aspects which actually brought me to KPMG, was like how in Australia on the back of the drought was there towns that were running out of water. And I think like <laughs> as the most fundamental of like human rights is that people don't have access to water. I just still can't comprehend how we like as a nation can put ourselves on this pedestal of global leaders when you've got people who don't have access to water. It's ridiculous. I couldn't have said it better. I have said it better. And add to that food because at the end of the day, they are the two fundamental things we need in life, food and water. And you're exactly right. There are entire towns and communities going without water, not mm. just once or twice in a lifetime, but frequently and equally entire communities that are struggling to access food, which should be a basic human right. So there's something pretty wrong with what's going on in terms of our social infrastructure at the moment, as well as the way that we are managing some of our natural resources um, to ensure that we can have water into these communities and, and do better. I think there is political will to fix it, but it's going to take time and we're going to need some of the brightest minds in the country to put their heads up, recognise that these are controversial issues, but be part of that solution because I'm pretty over hearing this water policy debate. I've been in observing it or embroiled in it directly for more than 20 years. Um, and what I know better than anything is when farmers are attacking one another, we're never going to get a good outcome. We have to find some common ground here and focus on a way forward because nothing breaks my heart more than seeing Southern irrigators having a go at those in the North and the guys in the North having a go and dryland versus irrigation enough. We mm. just have to sort it out. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing I can't get over is like, why are we flushing toilets with drinking water? Like it's just, there's so many like just things which are just so wrong, but I want to, I want to flip it back to like to you, but also obviously we had drought, bushfires, floods, COVID in the last 12 <laughs> months. In, in that time, like, how have you kept fronting up and what have been some of the oh shit moments in it all? <laughs> oh, there have been so many. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, to, to paint a full picture, 
we were pretty slammed for about two years at food bank because we saw drought across most of the eastern seaboard and we were working above and beyond to try and get drought relief packages and drought relief assistance into the regions at a time where our traditional rescue channels had dried up. We normally have such extraordinary support from the rice industry, for example, and Sunrise and, and all of the growers out there have been extraordinary supporters of ours for many seasons. But when there isn't a rice crop or when the, the crop fails, that means there isn't a donation of rice back into food bank. And we saw the same across grain. We saw the same across most commodities, which meant that our warehouses were less stocked than they should have been because there just wasn't enough product to go around. And so coming into bushfires in December, we knew that we were going to struggle and we actually signalled to the federal government our concerns that our warehouses weren't sufficiently stocked in part because of drought but other things as well um, and that we needed a, a pretty swift injection of funds that we could then use as an economic stimulus measure into the regions to purchase directly from regional manufacturers and growers um, but unfortunately that didn't come to fruition what did come to fruition was our worst expectations, which was that we were going to see a catastrophic disaster season, which we all saw. So whilst we had fires in October and November in Queensland and other parts of the country, the piece that really hit everyone, which is you know anyone across the globe um, saw this play out, was from New Year's Eve onwards to see the level of devastation across parts of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia and across the Kangaroo Island to have so many communities going through devastation at the same time, um, to borrow a phrase that's been used a lot during COVID, led to pretty unprecedented times for us, uh, where we were having to divert food out of our warehouses right across the country, down into Sydney, Melbourne, and into Adelaide to be able to assist those communities because we'd never had that scale of devastation all happening at once across so many jurisdictions. And it led to a situation where we had to put a shout out and a call out to the community to bring in products into the warehouses. And I'll never forget the scenes that we saw at our warehouse, the Food Bank Victoria warehouse in Yarraville, where people were queuing for hours to bring in the products that we had requested to be able to get to those communities. And I think one, and it still gives me goosebumps now to know how many people cared but two, to know that we could channel people's enthusiasm and desire to help through a funnel. Because the worst thing that can happen in a disaster is people who may be incredibly well-intentioned clogging the roads and bringing products into communities that they don't need, overwhelming volunteers, overwhelming evacuation centres. Whereas if we could channel their enthusiasm through food bank, because we are registered and, and enabled and, and enacted by state governments to respond in emergency relief, we can get those products to the right places in the right quantities at the right times and make sure that we're being incredibly efficient around how we do it. That was a logistical nightmare. Uh, <laughs> it took everything from uh, getting the military involved. We had food helicoptered into locations. We had put it on barges, you name it. We were doing everything that we could to get into these communities really swiftly. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of our state teams and their ability to mobilize that amount of relief and be really creative about how we got it there. So January for us was 24 seven. Um, I worked 30 of the 31 days of January, um, felt like the worst mother in the world because that also coincides with the school holidays and my children barely saw me, but I'm not alone in that. So many people across this country of ours were doing exactly the same thing throughout all of January, which meant that we got to February and were absolutely exhausted. 
And I was deeply concerned about our teams, not only in the Food Bank Australia office, but right across the country and the charities that rely on us for support being so incredibly fatigued. But also corporate Australia was fatigued as well in terms of donor fatigue because everyone had hit them for assistance and, and everyone had been so generous in their donations that I worried what that would mean for the end of the year if something else happened. And uh, what I had said to my team was, we just need to get through this January, February period because we know that recovery from disaster can sometimes be more taxing than the disaster itself and a long time COVID. And for, for a lot of our teams, they've not had a break since New Year's Eve. They have been going, uh, whether it be five days a week or seven days a week, for the last 11 months. And at some point, that's going to be a concern. And we are going above and beyond uh, to support our teams and make sure we are taking breaks. And I'm, I'm leading by example, and I'm the first to put my hand up when I need a mental health day. And I'm really open about the fact that I am breaking. Um, I don't say, you know, I've got to duck off to X or I have an appointment. I'm like, guys, I'm struggling and I need to just stay in bed today. Because I think unless we are open about the fact that our leaders are finding this hard too, then how can we expect our teams to put their hands up and acknowledge that and, and ask for support? So I do encourage anyone in a leadership or management position to be open and vulnerable with your teams, to trust them, particularly when it comes to mental health and wellbeing, because there is no playbook for getting through a pandemic. None of us have got a manual on how to manage ourselves and our teams and our families through a crisis like this. Mm. But I think we do have to acknowledge um, it's hard and it's exhausting and it is going to take a toll on people and we need to make sure we're taking annual leave and looking after ourselves and go walk the dog or go do a bushwalk, whatever you can, when you can. Uh, and I appreciate for Victorians, that's been a pretty rare luxury recently. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's great of you to ask how everyone's coping because I think um, we need to be talking about that. And I think over the next couple of years, we'll need to keep talking about that. It's been really bloody hard. Yeah, and so one thing that I've really wondered this year, and so you were just mentioning about transparency and leadership, but at what point is that transparency potentially detrimental where they, where it is obvious that, okay, look, Brianna, our fearless leader, is actually struggling and she's having a shit day and, yeah, that's nearly overwhelming. Yeah, and look, I think it's about how you prepare for those moments and how you respond to them. Um, for organisations that have employee assistance programs, focusing on using them proactively, not just in times of crisis, is really important to, to build up that wellbeing and resilience bank that everyone's talking about at the moment. Um, and to recognise that, that if I am having a bad day and I do need a bit of support, that doesn't mean I'm going to break and it doesn't mean that the organisation is going to fall down around me. It just need, means that I need a little bit more support right now to get me through that period. And if you've got a great board or you've got great management and great leaders, they're going to see that as a strength, not a weakness. And I think the, the biggest threat that we have is not acknowledging the fact that people are struggling at the moment and that we are going to need to support one another. So I think that's, that's a far bigger risk to business and a far bigger risk to organisations than actually acknowledging that it's difficult. Yeah, definitely. I know for my, like myself this year, I kind of found the distraction in humans vag and really kind of cultivating something out of that, but up mm. and yeah, basically I reckon. So yeah, obviously, as I said to you before, I'm taking leave at the end of this week, but I reckon I'm probably maybe five weeks too late. Like I reckon that point, or I should have walked away because the motivation has gone down and just, yeah, I don't know, just yeah. not feeling shit, but in terms of just, 
yeah, how it's kind of the years eventuated. I think as soon as we got to the point of relaxation down here in Victoria and there was that, yeah, you could see what was happening. That was really interesting in terms of just how people's morale actually, I suppose, peaked. Dropped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally get it. And look, good on you for acknowledging that. And I think for a lot of us, it probably is a case of, oops, I missed it. Um, <laughs> when, when I should have kind of picked it up. But I do think we're going to see a lot of that. And I mean, if you just go back to kind of the, the human reality piece, I remember in high school, you know, if you, you've just gone through exams and you've put everything into, you know, all your efforts into that focus, and then you go on holidays or the tournaments, that's when you get sick. It's mm. when you've been running on adrenaline and you've been coping and functioning. And then you're right, as things are relaxed, that does tend to be when it all hits you. And so in that regard, I do worry that we've all had this period and, and it's been fascinating as someone living north of the border in Victoria to see how Victorians have been coping. And, and my observation is there has been extraordinary camaraderie and a sense of togetherness and that we are in this together and we're going to fight the good fight. And I think some of that is born out of horrible behaviour where the rest of the country was really targeting and attacking Victoria. Mm. But out of that, I've really observed people who've come together. But now that you know, we're going to see the borders hopefully opened up completely in the next few weeks and some significant shifts, we need to make sure we're supporting one another through that right now because it is going to change things up. And I know if we look at some of the, the really difficult and confronting issues we're dealing with at Food Bank at the moment, as an example, um, and, and talking about an issue that I know will be difficult for some to hear about, but family and domestic violence, because we know where there have been uh, people who've been stuck in that scenario, now that these measures have been lifted, we are going to see increased presentations of people who are now in a position to escape that situation. So we do know that demand for emergency relief, whether that be food or housing or accommodation or, or mental health support will actually peak. Uh, and certainly our Food Bank mm. Hunger Report has shown us that we have no, by no means reached peak hunger in this country at this point in time. We know that the worst is actually yet to come um, and we need to be prepared for that. All right, and because uh, the stats in terms of, I saw it somewhere, wasn't it? With it? I'll say back in July, but it was like within three, the, the three months to July, you guys had done more food in that period than two years before or something crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're good with your stats. Yes, oh, we, yeah. bought more, <laughs> we bought more food in a three-month period than we had bought in the last three years. And there's a few reasons for that. One was this skyrocketing demand for food relief. But the other piece was about 80% or 85% of what we do at Food Bank is through food rescue. So it is rescuing product that doesn't look quite right. The remainder we purchase proactively or manufacture. And when we saw this incredible panic buying experience in the supermarkets, which put huge strain on our supply chains, that actually hit us hard because one, you had the most vulnerable communities in Australia who may only be able to get to the supermarket once or twice a week with a carer, turning up and not being able to get the products that they need because others had wiped the shelves bare, which then left them with no choice but to come to food banks and, and food pantries and the like. Um, but equally, it meant that our traditional base from manufacturers, from farmers and, and from the distribution centres of our retailers, there was nothing left for us to rescue. All of those products were going on the shelves. We saw a relaxation of specification standards where bananas that were a bit too long or a bit too bendy to previously be accepted and, and turn up in the supermarket, they were welcoming them in. And oh, it wow. put huge strain on us in terms of supply. 
so we had to buy a lot of food to compensate for that. And we were very fortunate that the Australian government was able to announce some funding uh, to enable emergency relief providers to scale up and scale up quickly. And thankfully, because we have great relationships with food and grocery manufacturers, with farmers and so on, we could get in there really quickly. Um, we've used our tried and trusted partnerships. We've also opened up new partnerships. It's been great to work with the pork industry, for example, and, and work with Margot and the team uh, at Australian Pork Limited to be able to open up access to more pork products. So it's been a really wild year. And then adding to that has been the need for us to shift what we provide because what we have observed is international students and temporary visa holders who've not been assisted through government assistance measures who are very reliant on us at the moment. And they have very different cultural uh, needs in terms of the food that they require. So we're very focused not only on how to get nutritious food and safe food, but also culturally appropriate food. All right, it's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is complicated, but it, equally it's a well-oiled machine. And again, if you come back to that circle that you were talking yeah. about, it's about us, you know, paddock to plate, having solutions in place, leveraging partnerships and, and being creative in what we do. And I love that so many of the contacts that I've made in agriculture have made this easier. Um, my ability to be able to lead and manage through this pandemic has been so much because of and thanks to the relationships and the experiences I've had in ag. And uh, one thing I haven't mentioned, uh, and it was a real turning point for me in terms of my career, both personally and professionally, was my participation in the Australian Rural Leadership Program. Because having done that program, not only did I learn a lot about myself and, and have a, a skill set and, and a set of tools that I could use every day, but I also have a network of peers that I can draw on anytime I need them whether that be for emotional support, for that informal mentoring, or just to ring and go, do you know what? Oh, this sucks. It's just, it's a nightmare because they're, they're not close enough to your organisation to know about the, the internal politics and, and you can have frank conversations, but they're close enough to you to know what you need to hear to snap out of it when you're having your kind of poor me moment. And uh, many thanks to my many colleagues from the Australian Rural Leadership Program who I've lent on this year. They've been extraordinary. That's amazing because, yeah, like I was going to say, just jumping back to you were talking about essentially the, the peak piece, but the stigma which came out in the hunger report this year was 33% mm. of people were embarrassed or thought others were more deserving of food relief than them. Mm. So like we've seen, we talked about it earlier, the stigma of mental health um, broken, but how is the next step in this process really society breaking the back of this stigma that is, food reliefs for, for the homeless and particularly as we move into 2021. 100%. Um, and I just want to clarify, it's not just the homeless. Yes, we provide food relief to those who are homeless, uh, but that is a tiny percentage of what we do. It is more likely to be someone living on your street or near your home than it is someone without a home. Uh, we're talking about those who are vulnerable for any number of reasons. In COVID, it's people who've lost their job, lost temporary employment, lost casual employment or lost permanent employment it is a realisation that for many Australians, there are only one or two paychecks away from being in a financially precarious situation. It is people who are faced with uh, really confronting but unexpected incidents in their life. It might be mum or dad being diagnosed with cancer. It might be the primary income earner suddenly losing their job. There are so many everyday reasons to 
lead to someone feeling vulnerable and being in a position where they're choosing between heating and eating, where they're choosing between feeding themselves or feeding their family. And you're exactly right. We have to reach a point in this country where we stop judging uh, and making assumptions about why someone is struggling. The number of conversations I've had, and, and I must confess it is shifting, certainly previously at Food Bank, not so much recently, people saying, oh, well, if they didn't gamble or if they didn't smoke or if they didn't drink or if they didn't whatever, it is not your place to comment or to judge. And we're talking about hardworking Australians who have fallen on tough times and we owe it to them to be able to assist them when they need that assistance the most. The vast majority of Australians who need food relief, it is a moment in time. They, yes, there are people who have lived with poverty and inequality all of their lives. They've been born into it and their circumstances are incredibly challenging um, and, and complex. And we are so proud to be working on solutions um, for so many segments of society, but we need to stop judging. Uh, and I think the one great thing about COVID has been an empathy that we haven't seen before, where I think a lot of Australians know someone who lost their job during COVID, know someone who has suddenly been placed in a situation where they can't pay the mortgage or they can't pay the rent or they're going to have to close their business. And I really encourage everyone who listens to your podcast to have a think about that and what that would feel like and, and how that affects people and to recognise that, yes, we are providing food relief to hundreds of thousands of Australians every single month but the reasons sitting behind that are complex and they require empathy and solutions, not judgment and stigma. The most heartbreaking experience I ever have at Food Bank is meeting people, particularly parents, because I am one and I have a closer affinity and, and closer relatability, who have gone days or weeks without eating or, or eating regularly or eating well because they're so embarrassed to come and ask for help. We can't help people if we don't know where they are and we can't help people if they don't put their hand up. And I don't want mums or dads sitting at home who aren't able to fill their children's lunchboxes to be tolerating that. I, I want them to put their hand up. We want to be able to help you. We want to get you back on your feet and we will. Yeah, wow. It's incredible when you talk about that. I think I'll make sure we put a link to the, in, oh, to the infographic, but to the whole report oh, that would um, be super. in the show notes. So Thank yeah, you. I was actually really looking forward to that coming out at, well, a month ago now, but yeah. Uh, yeah. On top of the list of other things you guys have, have done, <laughs> we'll just make sure we keep keep the report out there. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And so a question, uh, like I suppose I'm mindful of time as well here, but something that I've grappled with this year and have asked people regularly, um, and from where you sit, obviously, I suppose in the not-for-profit space, but I'd say the businesses or organisations that are for purpose as opposed to for-profit, um, Something that I've really questioned about like our systems is this economics mindset. And to me, like what's really been highlighted this year with COVID is like nature has proven just how superior it is um, <laughs> and that we still, yeah, hopefully we get a cure soon. But in terms of, are we actually going to see businesses change their fundamental mindset away from this economics first principles and yeah, what's your personal opinion on that? <laughs> yeah, it will disclaimer. be personal. Yeah, disclaimer is personal. Look, I, I don't know is the short answer. I think that we've had the wake-up call of a lifetime in terms of 
how we function, how we operate, how we work, how we interact with one another, and what's important in our lives. But I think history tells us we're pretty quick to forget some of these aha moments in time. And I think we do run the risk of being really careful and cautious and clever for the next 12 months and then reverting to type. And I think what we need to acknowledge is this is an opportunity to reset. And for a lot of businesses, particularly those who are not only talking the talk when it comes to corporate social responsibility, but really walking the walk, I think they will have done a lot of thinking this year about what is important to them and their teams and how to really make sure they live those values. And I think even something as, as simple, um, if that's the right word, as work from home arrangements, the fact that 12 months ago, if a staff member in a big corporate wanted to work from home, there was maybe a little niggle in the back of someone's mind about whether they were going to be working hard at home or, or whether there might be scope creep or whether there might be some slippage in terms of performance. Whereas I think now there's a recognition that working from home is actually incredibly efficient and people are probably working longer hours than they were in the office regardless because there is no gap. Um, so I think there'll be a real shift in, in that. I think that's a good thing. Um, and certainly when it comes to food bank and the way that we function as a team, it is all about family first and putting yourself first and, um, and a term, not my term that was coined, but I use it a lot, which is about the noisy exit. I, I love celebrating the noisy exit. So if someone has to leave and go visit mum because they happen to be in town or um, go to a school assembly or attend a performance night, whatever the case may be, be really loud and proud about that. Don't kind of slink away or, or say you've got an appointment because I think it's terrific that you have got things that drive you and inspire you and motivate you outside of work because that's what makes us all fabulous. So mm. I think this shift to work from home and the fact that so many Australians right now are saying, I don't ever want to go back to the office five days a week. I want to maybe do three days a week at home, two days in the office or whatever combination works for them. And the fact that employers are now going, cool, that works for us, fantastic. Yeah. As long as we're, we're cheaper rent. <laughs> well, I think that's going to be a big shift. Um, yeah. But I think you know one of the documents I love reading every year is the Deloitte Millennial Survey because it tells us a lot about what millennials are thinking as our newest employers coming, newest employees coming through the ranks, and what inspires and motivates them, and and what makes them um, unique in the way that we employ them, and and how they want to choose employers. It's not the other way around. Mm. And I'm always interested in the fact that they are purpose-driven, that they want to work in for-purpose organisations or that they want to work for corporates that have a purpose, that they want to know that it isn't just economy-driving decisions, that it's actually about triple bottom line. What's going on in sustainability? What's our contribution to community? Sure, we need to be sustainable, economically viable, et cetera. But unless you've got those three in balance, is that really a, an employer of choice? So I think mm -hmm. if we can keep thinking about that throughout COVID and COVID recovery, then we will be in a better spot. But I, I do worry we're going to forget. Yeah. And I think like coming back to, we were kind of, I suppose it's a, a theme along the leadership path. But like for me, and I don't know, I'd say sometimes I'm overly critical of leaders only because, yeah, being naive maybe. But um, in terms of now, like, a lot of people who are in senior management positions in any company in Australia have never ever seen economic tough times. What is it? 29 years we had economic growth. So never yeah. actually struggled. 
they've yep. had a CPI as the backing. And for me, like now is such an incredible opportunity to bring different people and actually live and breathe diversity at the table because ultimately like whatever the next 12 months is going to be like nothing we've seen before. And so mm. we need all those ideas and creativity, but also I just think energy as well uh, as much as anything. Yep. You're right. So how are we going to do that? What, what, do, I mean, you're younger than me. Let's just not point out my age. You're younger than me. What, what do you think for you and your peers? And you've said you're skeptical about leaders and, and I think it's a healthy skepticism to be honest. What do you think we need to be doing differently? Well, I think it is yeah, initially part of that bringing, making sure people are actually at the table, but not just there to tick a box that it's actually there present and people are having input and not yeah. merely having it as a, a metric, but like if people are sitting in on meetings and not having an input, well, what's the point in being there? So yeah, yeah everyone needs, yeah, not it. Well, I think an opportunity, particularly in the corporates where they've got the top to bottom piece that you can kind of live and breathe it a bit and experiment as well. Cause there's no, like you said, there's no playbook or formula. No. Um, and I think, yeah, uncovering one thing I see with people my age is there's a lot, a lot of people and probably even older people in business that actually don't have a passion. It's just that they're driven by money or whatever it may be. But beneath all of that, like you're fronting up for 50 or 60 hours a week just to make more money. Like far out. That's a pretty horrible way to live in my opinion. <laughs> you, no, I, share, I share that opinion. I can't, I mean, I've been, I know I'm incredibly fortunate to have had the sort of career that I've had, but I can't imagine working in an organisation where I don't passionately believe in what I'm doing and want to shout from the rooftops and drive my friends and family mad mm. with how much I talk about it. Because you're right, it's a huge chunk of your life. And if you are not there because you want to affect change or implement change or be part of a better future, then why are you there? Yeah, far out. Time is the like, most expensive investment you can give, I reckon. So. Yeah, it is a, a really interesting one. And I think, again, if we come back to what excites me about agriculture, it is the fact that no one's there to just make a buck. It's, it's not just about the money. And it is wonderful when we're making money in agriculture <laughs> and, and the regions thrive and, and it's extraordinary. But um, we have to acknowledge it's about so much more than that. And I think the fact that we're so seeing so many people right now questioning whether they want to be living in the cities, whether they want to be in a nine-to-five job, whether they want to be in an office. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people who are questioning whether they want to be still in farming as well. But mm. it's an important time to be asking yourselves those questions. And if you don't bloody love it, then you probably shouldn't be sticking it out. Yeah, there's plenty of opportunities for other things to do. And so that's mm. nearly the perfect interlude, which you said earlier on about young people and kind of opportunities in agriculture. It's a dynamic changing industry. It's incredibly mm. exciting. Um, if you were to talk to students in year 10 or 11, and to be honest, I don't think many of them listen to the podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it there. Um, um, actually, I will, as a disclaimer to that, I had um, the Queensland DPI use snippets of the podcast out of this question to take to schools. So that was cool. But Great. And I do often talk to home economics classes. I'll have you know, I do oh, often get laughing. zoomed in and, and chat about food insecurity <laughs> and all those sorts of things. So we're going to get there. Okay. Awesome. Well, so talking to say students in year 10 or 11, and they've got that exciting, but also scary time beyond school, what would be, I suppose, some life advice to them, but also around the opportunities in, in and around agriculture? I think 
the, the first piece of advice would be to find out the breadth and scope of opportunities ahead of you that are not just in the cities or not just in economically driven roles, that agriculture and, and the massive range of careers sitting in and around it is a great place to explore. And I think part of that has to be back on our careers advisors around educating them about the exciting times that we have in agriculture. But I think my best advice, and, and I've got a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so I'm coming to that point in time where we are going to be talking about careers and uni and whether that's the right fit and so on. Um, and my best advice to my boys is don't be afraid to fail. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Get in there, give it a burl. Is it going to work out? You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again or don't. Like seriously, if, if it's not working out and it's not going to work out, then don't be afraid to acknowledge that. So I think being open to the fact that you're not going to make the perfect choice straight up that maybe you will and maybe that'll be wonderful but it's rare that it's actually okay to try a couple of different uh, career paths before you land on something that fits and I think what we are seeing at the moment is a lot more latitude in terms of the way people are looking at their careers that they're not just saying I need to go and be an ex and I need to stay on that path for the next 30 years. I think there is an acknowledgement that it, it can be launch pads and, and opportunities to go down different paths. I think what we need to do better is, is look at um, how many opportunities there are that aren't necessarily inside the farm gate when it comes to agriculture, but that are providing support services to it. And um, I was really lucky to be part of the Syngenta Growth Awards judging panel quite recently. And to to hear firsthand from agronomists and advisors and work health and safety consultants and amazing sustainability advocates and people who are giving so much back to community, they're the stories that we need to start celebrating. And um, as I mentioned before, we're working really closely with National Farmers Federation to, to be part of that storytelling, to highlight how many amazing growers there are out there. And um, there was one very recently that we came across in South Australia who is sitting down with university students around seed trials. Um, and when that crop does get up, whether it fails or is perfect or imperfect, they donate that crop back into food banks. So it's been an amazing learning opportunity for the university students. Um, great in terms of development with the seed trials, but equally we're feeding hungry people. We're not just using the outcomes of that seed trial and, and dumping it or plow, plowing it back in. So that circle keeps coming back again. And I think as long as we can use those case studies. Um, I know a lot of farmers and growers out there are using Twitter more and more, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, socials, YouTube, whatever. Um, don't be afraid to tell the story. And I think the other piece of advice I would have, um, particularly around social media, is haters gonna hate. You know, unfortunately, when it comes to agriculture, and, and we even see this at Food Bank. I remember we did a, a social post uh, when Beef Week was on or whatever they're calling Beef Week these days. Um, and I was trolled so hard by vegans in a 48 hour period that I had to turn my social media off. Um, we did a, a partnership with Don KRC earlier in the year and I was doing some TV promotions around that and I received a voicemail telling me I was responsible for the yellow wiggle having a heart attack because he likes bacon. I mean, we've got such extremist views out there about um, meat consumption, about whether we should be growing rice in this country, let alone attacking the cotton industry. Unfortunately, that is going to be a reality. There are going to be people out there who hate what we do in agriculture, but I want to really keep that in perspective. The vast majority of us love what we do in ag. We're proud of what we do in ag. And if we can lift each other up and support each other, and we do see that trolling and targeting going on, 
stepping in there and calling it out, it's a pretty important thing to do. And mm. um, and I, I want to particularly acknowledge what a tough time some rural women in agriculture have gone through in the last few years, whether it be through socials or, or putting their head up above the parapet and, and only to be shot down again. Uh, we have to support one another in this because the biggest risk to agriculture is division. And um, unfortunately, we haven't got it right yet, but I do think we have a great opportunity to keep working away at it. Yeah, definitely. And I think just following on that too is the creating the space where people are coming, not just with criticisms, but coming with ideas. It doesn't have to be the solution, but just come with ideas and surely That's as it. a collective, uh, we can work out a better way forward. Spot on. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much. I know it's been, geez, what has it been? Nine months in the making, but uh, <laughs> cheering from the sideline up. Yeah, appreciate all the support you've given me over not just this year, but over the years. And yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. Thank you kindly. And look, congratulations on behalf of all of your loyal listeners. <laughs> you are doing a great job. And I think we've sat here a lot talking about the need for better storytelling in agriculture. And it's most remiss of me not to highlight someone who's doing a cracking job of it. And that's you. So well done. And enjoy the break. Yeah, thank you. Can't wait. Go on. Yeah. Go and work on holidays, but actually get outdoors. That's it. Going to get knocked around a bit, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Work on the fitness. Enjoy. What an episode and a way to finish. Yeah, what has been a massive, I suppose, year, or at this stage anyway, I'm taking, as I mentioned there, three weeks off of annual leave to get away and go and do a bit of harvesting. But just on that episode, I just love Brianna's energy and just what she brings to the table, I reckon. Yeah, the the work she's doing for the, the people who are most vulnerable in our community is just exceptional, but just the way she approaches leadership, um, the mental health aspects and just the breadth of her career and such, I suppose, what's been an amazing couple of decades for her. You can find all the details for Food Bank in the show notes below. Um, they are an incredible organisation and incredible people. And hopefully next year we'll be able to look at diving into some more of the areas in the background of what Food Bank does and, and some of the programs in which they do. So hopefully we can uh, yeah give a bit of insight into food waste and food insecurity in Australia. So I'll be heading off, yeah, for, for a, cut, a few weeks. So you'll be all alone on the airwaves. Thanks for keeping me company. Over the last few months, it's amazing to think it's been, yeah, since... Well, the start of February was when things started to get rolling. Uh, but, yeah, we're already getting planned for series and campaigns for next year. So we'll be back bigger and better than ever. Hopefully with a few new voices on the airwaves as well as we look to diversify with new and interesting segments and series and bringing other people into the conversation because ultimately I'm just one voice and there is a whole lot more out there. Look after yourselves. Stay safe and stay sane. It's been a crazy 2020. Can't wait to see you all again very soon.